0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast version with me, Steve Richards. The first of the early autumn period, but hopefully one of many. It's quite hard to do these days because if you put something down on tape or whatever it's called, computer, computer, the whole political scene has changed by the time you've actually finished recording. But anyway, let's have a go. There is so much whirling around at the moment in on so many different levels. Some, I think, quite big red herrings, some clearly of vital, urgent importance. I'm afraid on one level the red herrings include the Supreme Court case ending the prorogation of Parliament, the device of Johnson and Cummings to prorogue Parliament had already failed because it was done to prevent Parliament from introducing a law obliging Johnson to ask for an extension rather than no deal at the EU summit. And that law had already passed. So although it was a moment of great theatre when the judgment was read out and potentially damaging that Johnson was found to have acted unlawfully imporoguing Parliament. It's not central to the great drama being played out. Clearly, over time, it will be one of the many momentous consequences of Brexit that a Supreme Court has rule as to when a government can and can't prorogue parliament which has other implications about this unwritten constitution that isn't working very well at the moment but in terms of the fate of this government in terms of what happens to Brexit I think it's of limited significance or perhaps no significance at all and that applies to some extent also with this heated debate about the violent language being used in political exchanges at the moment. I watched most of the debate on that first day back when the House of Commons returned and Johnson's phrasing and juxtapositions are outrageous and without reason. They are part of a Trump-like populism that he has decided to adopt, partly inauthentically, it's partly an act of imitation, Trump being the model, but it is partly him. He is basically a polemicist, a columnist that provokes, who forms phrases that stand out and um, make waves, and that's what he is doing as Prime Minister. But they aren't particularly shocking or distinctive in their outrageousness. You just have to deal with them by framing alternative arguments. So Johnson has every right. We know it's dangerous. We know it's potentially potent to frame a debate around Parliament versus the people. You just have to find ways of exposing the weakness of the argument. One of the most obvious is to say the people elected the Parliament and did so, incidentally well after the referendum had taken place. So in terms of relevance, this parliament is newer in terms of democratic outcomes than uh, the referendum. This parliament was elected after the referendum. But anyway, he has a right to frame that argument. There is an argument that the referendum, that uh, stupid device introduced by... The shallow David Cameron, incidentally a shallowness uh, reinforced, I think, by his memoir, which I've read, and it sort of inadvertently makes more sense of him. He was not an enigmatic figure like some prime ministers are. He wasn't a prime minister of great depth, but somehow in the memoir, a naivety emerges in his reading of politics and people, which I hadn't really clocked before, and it partly explains the route he took towards this uh, referendum. But anyway he called it the people in inverted commas voted and they voted by a majority to leave and parliament voted by a huge majority to hold the referendum and then by a huge majority to trigger article 50. Two mistakes by Labour the one in that disastrous summer of 2015 when they decided to back the referendum they didn't have to and then again when they decided to back the triggering of article 50 when they didn't have to they could have easily framed arguments not to do so one of which would be we should only trigger article 50 when we know what the government's brexit plan is they didn't have one as we now know and so there is a legitimacy to johnson's argument it is also absurd for the reasons i've just said that the people have subsequently elected the parliament uh, that is meant to be against the people. But the sort of shrieks of shock as if this is a completely outrageous world of debate is just ignoring the past. The Thatcher era was accompanied by equally shrill language. She described miners or some of the miners as the enemy within with an echo to the falklands when she was referring to the argentinian junta she talked about the dangers of being swamped when reflecting on the numbers coming into the united kingdom not then incidentally from europe and there was throughout that period an intense and highly charged debate In the early 80s, if Twitter was around, I can tell you it would be as intense and puerile and violent and all the other things that are on Twitter As it is now. There was then a debate between the uh, wets and the dries within the Tory party. The Labour party was moving to the left, but that produced the schism with the SDP. It was kind of an epic politics of great intensity and anger and ideological fervour. And if Twitter had been around, there would have been roused. The BBC would have been attacked for using Enoch Powell too often on question time. The BBC would have got worked up about Twitter then and said that something wrong with the quality of political debate. They don't understand. We're trying to be impartial. It would have been very, very similar. Europe has obviously intensified things and notched it up to a different level because Europe, in inverted commas, has come to mean so many different Things, most of them absolutely nothing to do with what the European Union does and what the implications are for the UK if it leaves. For some Brexiteers, it's a fantasy about Britain standing alone in the world, being tough, being independent and assertive, and forming a close alliance with the United States. For some of them, frankly, it's not that much different from the way they support the England football team. You know, this is us against them. And we are going to be free again from them. It's partly about kicking the establishment and so on. And for some Remainers, Europe in inverted commerce has become a kind of ideal. It's internationalist. It's about moving from country to country. I remember... And he was sort of right about this when the debate about the euro was raging in the mid to late 1990s. I remember having a chat with Norman Lamont, who's quite a perceptive reader of politics, and he said that um, many of those who supported the euro believe that if we join the single currency, the UK joined the single currency, we would be able to sit on balconies drinking chilled white wine and eating olives well into the autumn because we would suddenly acquire all the uh, benefits of some of those european countries in terms of the climate and everything else and he was he on one level he was right that there was that side of it about it a sort of desire to be european in inverted commas and that fuels some of the remainer anxiety and depression now that britain is turning its back on an international body and internationalism and of course that is also partly Right, it is. But, in fact, Britain could still be internationalist outside the European Union. These are quite emotive arguments. It kind of means it's one of those debates that everyone can join in and feel angry about. Whereas, I suppose, in the early 80s, the anger was more confined to those who were who kind of understood monetarism, the impact of spending cuts versus Keynesianism and all that kind of thing. I don't know, I don't know. But I've got a feeling it would have been almost as intense if you had the social media that we have now in the early 80s and indeed the 70s, the minor strikes of the early 70s. We had a three-day week, power cuts and all the rest of it. This is not that unusual in the intensity. Where it is darkly alarming is the threats to MPs. That has got much much worse a combination of this emotive issue and social media and the rise of a sort of angry far right and so on and that is new and I think it's an accumulation of an anti-politics culture which has infected much of the western world but um, has been infecting the UK for a long long time I remember in the New Labour era, which is now looked back on as a sort of model of stability, landslide governments, ideological debates about foundation hospitals and so on. But there was a deepening; you could feel it. Anti-politics culture, fueled actually largely by the media. You know, New Labour—it was all about spin and lying and this kind of thing. It was, and it was—it wasn't. It was—it was a much more complicated, multi-layered picture largely whether you agree with them or not of elected politicians trying their best to make this place a better place to live in which also applied whatever you thought of the coalition to that coalition government on the whole but certainly during the new labor era to a lesser extent with the coalition because Cameron and Clegg commanded quite a lot of support amongst the commentary at there was this oh he's lying you know it must be a lie you know oh it's oh they've announced something it must be spin it c- won't be happening sometimes by the way that was true that uh, Blair Brown and others mistook an announcement with implementation you know oh honestly yeah it's great we're on the front page on this that housing announcement we got it got it on the telegraph and then they sort of forgot to build the houses but on the whole, that was not the case, but that was how it was perceived. And of course, if, as a voter, with all your instincts already pretty hostile, you then read that actually they're lying all the time, it's going to build up a loathing of these people. And it's now reached the point where some of them have to have security and all the rest of it. So that is new. I don't think would have happened in the 80s and the 70s, although, again, you never quite know what impact social media and other factors might have had but that's new but the rest I think of this recent focus this rather precious focus on the language of Johnson or the language of the other sides wholly okay for people to chant stop the coup and there's nothing wrong with that now it wasn't a coup But you can see what they're getting at there. That was when uh, Johnson prorogued Parliament. It's a perfectly legitimate chant and no more extreme than some of the chants you got in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I think it's all right. It's outrageous. But if Johnson wants to call the Ben Act, which compels him not to do a no deal and to negotiate an extension, if he wants to call it the Surrender Act, let's frame arguments to show how absurd that term is to an act which actually protects Britain from falling off a cliff. It's not that difficult. But because there are so few elected politicians these days who can frame arguments powerfully there is now a new move which is to complain about the argument instead you should frame arguments to counter it anyway all of this as i say i think while compelling the supreme court the rows about language and all the rest of it are irrelevant in the end the key question is what happens with johnson the deal if there is a deal and what happens if he can't get a deal, does he obey the law, what happens if he doesn't, and so on. It's uh, quite interesting for me watching Johnson. I've just finished writing a book on modern prime ministers, which is just out now. By the way, I should add, it's called Prime Minister's Reflections on Leadership, from Wilson to May. It starts with Harold Wilson and goes up to Theresa May. And one of the many interesting themes, and there are sort of recurring themes and patterns when in a kind of quite Shakespearean way, when you look at these figures who have acquired the crown through one means or another. And one of them is the sheer hell of being a prime minister in a hung parliament. In effect, leading a minority government, or in Cameron's case, a coalition. It involves hard unglamorous grind day in night out wooing MPs on your own side reaching out to other parties in order to get votes through the House of Commons but if you do the hard and glamorous grind although it exhausts you and all prime ministers in hung parliaments emerged bewildered exhausted and depressed you can keep going And you can win quite a lot of votes. In the period I looked at at different points, Harold Wilson was leading a minority government after February 74. Callaghan's government became a minority government. He took over in 76 and lost in 79. And Major, towards the end of his period, it was, in effect, a hung parliament. So it was, in effect, with Theresa May. She had that deal with the DUP, but they were not the most reliable of partners. And now Johnson. It's surprising, actually, how many, given our voting system, is meant to lead to sort of strong and stable, to coin a phrase, government, how many hung parliaments there have been in modern times. And each of them, with the exception of Johnson, have recognised in their different ways that they have to, as Major put it once, to one of his party conferences when he was condemned as being weak and not as strong as Thatcher. He said to them, look, I'm leading now in a hung parliament. This was towards the 97 election after 1992. Gradually his majority got whittled away for one reason or another. And he said, I have no choice but to twist and turn. It doesn't mean I'm weak as a politician. I'm in a context where I have no choice but to do it. Sort of pleading with them to recognise that you can't be the iron lady, or in his case the iron man, when you have no means to be iron-like. Wilson lost quite a few votes after February seventy-four on key elements of his economic policies. But what he did quite cleverly was after February seventy-four. He always planned ahead, he knew he was going to have a second election as soon as possible, he did in October. So in those six months when it was a really hung parliament, he had five more seats than the Tories, he just plucked the sort of cherry-like proposals from his manifesto, put them forward, implemented them, got them through, sometimes with Tory support, and then held an election in October where he won just a small overall majority. What Callaghan did was to focus on keeping his party together, his cabinet and his parliamentary party, hugely divided on every issue under the sun, from economic policy to the role of the state and, of course, Europe. And I did one other thing. That wasn't enough. He was good. I mean, he he kept his cabinet together brilliantly. But he had to reach out to another party to keep the show on the road, and he formed a pact with the Liberals and quite a close relationship with David Steele. It's an example of the Liberals working with Labour, and uh, Jo Swinson should take note of this. They don't always have to turn to the Conservatives, but she has unsubtly and and in a way which exposes her inexperience, ruled out any even short-term arrangement with uh, the Corbyn leadership just to get this thing sorted, Brexit. Anyway, that worked quite well for Callaghan, even though it was hell. He lost votes. They had round-the-clock meetings of the Cabinet and so on. But he kept the show on the road for three years. And by 79, even though there was economic turmoil, there were some who still thought Callaghan might win that election in 79 in fact he never had a chance but he did keep the thing going and get quite a lot of his policies through and then Major kept his show on the road for five years he started with majority but he ended in a minority government again by twisting and turning as he put it Cameron did it by reaching out to the Liberal Democrats and forming a coalition, and in doing so, through the naive gullibility of Clegg at times, managed to get through a programme, which if you read his memoirs, it it confirms it, even though this is not what his intention is, a programme of the radical right, deep spending cuts in their so-called austerity programme, real-term spending cuts, which is out Thatcher's, Margaret Thatcher's economic policies, and a fracturing of the public services under the guise of reform, uh, which even she wouldn't have dared to Contemplate. So they got a lot through, but they had to reach out to the Liberal Democrats. May had to reach out to the DUP and tried hard and failed to keep her cabinet on board. She suffered more resignations than any prime minister. She just wasn't good at it, which is why I'm quite impressed with Callaghan, a deeply unfashionable political figure. He kept his government together. There were no cabinet resignations over policy under him when there really could have been many many times so this is just what you have to do it's not a a sort of recipe for impressive leadership it's not glamorous you cannot preach and proclaim and then do in those circumstances but the circumstances are what they are and Johnson has done something quite extraordinary he's come in and behaved as if he had a majority of about 500, made the most unswerving pledges. Door die, out, out, we're out on October the 30th. Door die, door die. He has made his already precarious parliamentary position much worse by kicking out the likes of Hammond and Letwin and Soames and Clark. I still can't believe it when I see Philip Hammond on television. You see the label, they call it the Aston, Philip Hammond independent. Johnson has turned Philip Hammond into a revolutionary figure. And this is just the way you can't behave in a hung parliament. However much you want to um, disrupt and cause a sense of bewildering chaos through which you emerge triumphant, the circumstances won't allow you to do it, and some people, when I've reflected on this at live shows in Edinburgh or in London, say, "Well, surely he has no choice but to to do this. That Brexit gives him no choice." And and the answer is, he does have limited choices, but that wasn't the only one. To sort of go for broke, to put in a hardline Brexit cabinet, to to create this situation where he's in a minority in parliament and so on there is a majority in parliament for a soft brexit but he opted for this sort of hardline approach and you can see why the brexit party is breathing down his neck but the pattern suggests that seeking to become brexit party like only leads leaders towards their doom Cameron offered the referendum in an attempt to destroy Farage, in effect. But Farage is still very much alive and kicking politically. So in the end, someone will have to take on the Brexit party rather than appease it. So I think as a minority leader, he has behaved in an extraordinary way. This isn't a prediction that he is doomed to fail. But if he succeeds, it will be the most vivid example of the fact that we have entered an entirely new political phase where sort of fanatical willpower, as personified by Dominic Cummings and to a lesser extent Johnson, is the new political criteria for triumph. And that um, democratic constraints and dealing with them in a subtle and sophisticated way are irrelevant and a kind of just a fanatical determination to prevail is all that matters and democratic constraints can just be bypassed. So we'll see, but it's uh, not clear to me that that will necessarily be the outcome, but he is a freakish Prime Minister in that sense. In a way, and I suspect many of those listening to this are going to disagree with what I say now, The events of recent days, this highly charged atmosphere, makes me conclude that the policy proposed by Jeremy Corbyn is the best way through, or the least worst. People condemn him for how can you take this stand whereby you are not going to declare your own position, and so on. It seems to me that is just what is needed. A Prime Minister that calmly facilitates amidst all the wild storms is exactly what we need. Not one like Johnson saying, oh, we're out, door die, uh, uh, the law, we're, we're still out, October the 31st. Or someone saying, although it's uh, what I think would be the cleanest breakthrough, uh, revoking Article 50, that too in this highly charged atmosphere becomes an act of provocation too far but for Corbyn to say and I think it is almost his authentic position that if I were to become Prime Minister I would facilitate a referendum between Remain and a soft Brexit that is deliverable rather than these incredible Brexit propositions that have been put for three and a half years by various Brexiteer Tory administrations would be fraught with difficulty but would be I think the least worst route and is I don't understand why so many people say oh what a disaster how how do you explain that on the doorstep and the answer is on the doorstep you would say that what Labour is proposing is a referendum it will transform the debate because it will be between remain and a soft Brexit where we still remain economically close to the European Union. So a more realistic break, which really would put an end to the whole debate because there wouldn't be years of further negotiations about trading arrangements. That would be sorted out in the soft Brexit. And Then a candidate will say, I'm personally for Remain and will be campaigning for Remain. Or a candidate might say, I am inclined to be backing the Brexit deal when we get it, which will be a pretty short time after the election. And, and that's it. I mean, I, it won't calm everyone down because that's impossible in the current situation. But I don't know why people are saying it is such a catastrophe. It seems to me a rather calm, measured act of pragmatism. I understand the argument that this has now become so binary that for anyone to steer a middle course is an electoral catastrophe. But for that to be right, it means voters acting in pretty crazy ways. If people feel strong enough about Remain, the tactical voting options will start to kick in. And then people say, oh yeah, but I would prefer Johnson in power than Corbyn, in which case they don't really care that strongly about Remain, because they are then condemning the United Kingdom to a hard Brexit under Johnson. But if they do feel strongly about it, they will vote tactically and get a referendum uh, which is what they have wanted. The other thing about Corbyn is this that one of the dangers and I think this is a real danger is if there were to be a referendum and Remain were to win you could get a real sense of terrible despair from Brexiteers who fear, certainly in the north of England, who the, the so-called left behind and all the rest of it, who fear that having been, in inverted commas, that dangerous word which should be banned but can't be, who feel betrayed by the sort of economic liberalism since 1979 to now, would just despair. Their one act of rebellion and the old lot got their act together and prevented them from prevailing. But that could not be said if Corbyn were Prime Minister. If Corbyn were Prime Minister and Britain stays in the European Union, the so-called left behind and all the rest of it could hardly look at that government and say, oh, here we go, it's back to Blair, Cameron, Clegg, they won again on every front, because there would be changes galore happening under that government. And would do, I suspect, under a minority administration too. So if you're bothered about Remain with the intensity that the debate suggests, a hell of a lot of people are bothered. I don't see why the Corbyn proposition is as crazy as virtually everyone I speak to tells me it is. But maybe I'm missing something in this uh, sequence, is easy to miss something because it's, it's on so many, so many different layers. So we'll have to wait and see. I suspect that this talk of a national government, a short-term national government under Ken Clark or Harriet Harman, won't happen. It just seems to me it involves so many leaps that it won't happen. It reminds me a bit of when, after the 2010 election Gordon Brown stayed on and tried to form a coalition with the Welsh nationalists, the Scottish nationalists, the Liberal Democrats and so on. And um, it just all became too much in the end and, and you know, it, 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 I can't see the leaps being made. Uh, so who knows what will happen. The, the only way out for Johnson, it seems to me, and it's not a whole way out, there is no clear route for anyone in this drama would be to basically come back with May's deal, blame this parliament and the judiciary that he couldn't get the deal that he wanted or that he can't leave without a deal. Two propositions he would have happily considered, but he has been blocked by the establishment from doing it and saying, look, here's May's deal, I've always said we'll leave on October the 31st, and under me, I will liberate Britain from the shackles of the European Union in the second stage of the negotiations. And maybe he'll get enough of the hardline ERG group to back it just because they want to get out. And there may be some Labour MPs naive enough to fall into what would be a very big trap, and he gets it through. And then in November, the transition kicks in, so nothing will have changed. The pound will have gone up. People will say, oh, yeah, you know, all these Brexits, I told you, told you. All you predicting it will all go wrong. Everything feels exactly the same. And, of course, that won't last for very long. All the debates will resurface about supply chains because they don't want to be in the customs union and all the other arrangements will have to be negotiated. It will take more than the transitional period to do it, because these things do. There can't be a trade deal with the US until the one with the much bigger market of the European Union has been sorted out. So we would soon return to crisis. But not in November, if he decided to call an election, days after he had taken Britain out. So that's what I would do if I were him. He might not pull it off. It would be the most outrageous act of chutzpah because he's condemned May's deal thousands of times but that it seems to me is his only route towards a possible election win at the end of this year. If that doesn't happen and he has shown no sense so far that it will Although I think the one thing he's saying that is truthful is that he wants a deal. He'd be crazy not to want a deal. But there's no evidence that enough progress is being made on the alternative to the Irish backstop. So he would have to convince people that he's been forced into it. It's incidentally not true. He would never have got his stuff through if the Ben Act hadn't been passed. But who knows? If he doesn't do that, he is in deep trouble because i say he's pursued the style of a landslide prime minister in a hung parliament with the thorniest issue to face a prime minister since 1945 so anyway epic times to come i'm doing a lot of the book festivals in the coming months so I might see you at some of those if you can't make those the books out and i'm doing a live show at king's place on the historic date of october the 31st in london so um i who knows where we'll be by then but it will be historic most of the tickets are sold out it's in hall one in king's place i think there are a few tickets left on the balcony which is a great view it's a lovely hall and then i'm doing another one there in december as a kind of Christmas rock and roll politics and I'll be back here very soon but thank you all for listening see you next time and who knows what form next time will take